When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Bearing Michael's body in the LA River. Well, I mean, can we jackhammer through the cement to get there? There's some dirt parts, though. That's true. That's true. They're, they're re-greening the LA River. We could use his body as compost. Oh, wait. Are we oh. live? Hi. Oh. We're here. Planning our weekend. Hello, everyone. I'm Alicia Krauss, and we're live with our newest episode of The Conversation. With me is editor-in-chief, New York Times bestselling author, my brother from another mother, Ben Shapiro. Wild enthusiasm. He will. He's just excited because it's Friday, and he knows after this he gets to go home and relax. Yeah, and for Rosh Hashanah. Oh, yeah. You get, you get, get like four a, days off. Good for you. Now, Thank you, God. <laughs> well played, God. Literally, TGIF. <laughs> is this a is this a holiday that you can eat though? It's not a fast day, right? Not a fast day. Although next Wednesday is a fast day, and then ten days after that is a fast day. Okay. So yeah, You're there's about, a lot of fasting. You could do like a Ben Shapiro Weight Watchers plan. Uh, this is a yo-yo diet though. This is like <laughs> you eat a lot on Rosh Hashanah. You don't eat it all on Som Gedalia. You don't eat it all on Yom Kippur. You eat a ton on Sukkot. Like it's just up and down and up so and down. So you're like Renee Zellweger before and after British Jones's diary. You're just like roller coaster with the weight. That's exactly right. And then I have really a lot of plastic surgery and <laughs> do a movie about Judy Garland. All right. We'll get back to the topic at hand, which is the conversation. We are conversing, but we want all of you to be able to ask Ben your questions, which is what we will be doing for an entire hour here at The Daily Wire. All right. <laughs> Please remember that our conversation is live for everyone to watch, but only the Daily Wire subscribers get to ask the questions. How do you ask the questions? Head on over to a brand new, recently updated, dailywire.com. It's super fast. It's super cool, super fast. Click on the link in our video description if you want to ask a question or become a subscriber and then go back to that page to ask that question of Ben. And be sure to turn it in for next month's episode, which is featuring Andrew Claven. You're not making a strong case. I'll be <laughs> well, honest with you. He's nice, most of the time. Is he? Is he Alicia? He's like, you know He's that, very bald. You know that Drew used to scare me? Like, he actually used to scare me because I couldn't used to. read him? Yeah, because the dead shouldn't be walking. <laughs> he's not that old. Well, Skeletor is scary. I mean, I mean <laughs> next to the God King, he's the oldest person in the company. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> Jeremy taking one right in the grill for well, I love, right I love to give the God King a hard time because, you know, he turned 40 this year. I do know that. You threw him a very nice party. I did. That was generous nice of you. Party. It also happened. We have a good relationship. On his birthday, I buy him nice things. On my birthday, he doesn't say anything. <laughs> that's the way you like it, though. Precise. That's also, why we're friends. Also, as a present to yourself on his birthday, you made sure to have his party when Michael Knowles was out of town. That's true. That, that Which we all accurate. appreciated. But I give Jeremy a hard time. I'm like, I always talk to people about how like Daily Wire is so cool. We have an office of amazing people. And most of us are under 40. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're in your 30s. This is true. There's a lot of people here that are real young. Yeah, I have a little while still in my 30s. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy it. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy it. I have a few few years left. So What are you going to do for the 40th? <sighs> Retire. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I'm sure we'll get like, no, Ben, run for president. So we've never done this before, but I kind of want to do this because it is a Friday and we haven't had you for a conversation in a while. Because subscribers get to control what's happening, I want you to implore them and beg them, what would you prefer to talk about today? Like, what questions do you want them to ask? Oh, man. I mean, I don't really care. I'm ornery. And as we know, ornery Ben is best Ben. So I am I am up for pretty much anything. You're ready uh, to be disdainful towards all of our amazing subscribers. Well, today. no, no, no. I, I like the subscribers. It's everybody else I disdain. And if you're watching this for free, let me just say, my, my disdain for you is fairly strong. So if you wish to avoid the disdain, then truly you should subscribe. I mean, I know this is a hard sell, guys, but let's be real about this. I mean, we are here working for you. And let's also be real that there are a lot of people out here who want to take us off the air every single day and destroy our business. And the way that you make sure that doesn't happen is by subscribing. So I'm not even going to make the you get all sorts of great stuff pitch because you do. You get all sorts of great stuff. But more importantly, like stuff that you support, you should actually support because the fact is that there are horrible, horrible people who spend every single waking hour of their lives being paid to watch my show specifically so that they can try and take me off the air. And this is true for all of our other hosts and pretty much all the hosts on the right. So if you like the show, 
If you like what we do, you should subscribe and help us out. You, we appreciate it. it. It also makes sure that Alicia gets paid and Pavel gets paid children. and everybody around here gets paid. And most of the time they do a, a mediocre job. So you should keep them being paid is, is my pitch. All right, good. So ask the questions that you want because Ben said he'll answer them no matter what. That's pretty much no, that's pretty much right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, sweet. First question comes from Chase. He says, hi, Ben. I have a question about the congressional hearings. Why do they have hearings when they are not interested in learning anything at all? Is it all for political gain? Yes. <laughs> that was a two-part question. Why do they have hearings at all? And is it for political gain? It is for political gain. Yes. And so it's like tied together. <laughs> <laughs> I got I'm, nothing on that. I mean, that, I'm that's obvious. For the next question. Right. Exactly. I know. I know we're stalling for yeah. time here, but yeah. that is that is obviously the case. I mean, come on. You, you have all these congressional schmucks and they sit up there and they speechify for six minutes. And then they say, and, and you, sir, how dare you? And then the witness is like, well, I would like to answer the question. And they're like, well, you're out of time. You can't. So, yeah. The, the, the hearings are really stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've taken part in a couple of them. They are, they are in... So they're not stupid when you're there, but they're stupid all the way Oh, no, they're stupid all the way through. But the question is, can you use the stupidity to your own personal advantage? <laughs> That's pretty much what all of this is for, for witnesses, for people who are hosting it. When's the last time you saw something get done during a hearing? Never. Like, no, well, nothing ever gets done. Campaign ads. This is why I'm, I'm with Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas, even during the oral arguments for the Supreme Court, he said, listen, I've read your briefs. I'm not interested. This is a waste of my time. I understand that you're all here to put on a show and all that. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit here and I'm going to play Angry Birds and you guys can do what you want. And at this point, Justice Clarence Thomas is an expert at both constitutional law and Angry Birds. So he now has a skill that no one else has on the Supreme Court. So can you make the case for and against C-SPAN? Because I have friends that have made an argument that C-SPAN, even though its intention was to make it plausible for the American people to see what's happening with our legislators, it's actually created this mentality that they do grandstand more and then get nothing done. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I really do. I mean, the fact is that the viewership of C-SPAN does not necessarily justify the, like all the important <laughs> stuff that's happening in Congress is not the stuff happening on C-SPAN. Yeah. All the negotiations are happening behind closed doors. All of the really important talk is happening behind closed doors. You're just privy to people, you know, cutting a campaign ad. So if you, if you really enjoy watching people cut campaign ads or you, you really love watching people take calls from, from people abusing them on air, then C-SPAN is a wonderful place to be. All right. MJ says, what do you think of the contract with America? It was good. Uh, it was it was the first. It was, so it was good in one way and, and not great in another. It was wonderful in the sense that it was the first attempt at an overt and comprehensive conservative move in governance for a long time. So and from the legislative branch, so Ronald Reagan did it from the presidential branch. Unfortunately, American policymaking has been done increasingly from the executive branch since the beginning of the 20th century. Contract with America was an actual attempt to put forward a legislative agenda, which is something you really haven't seen from Democrats or Republicans before or really since. And, and that was a very good thing. The one way I think that it was not great is that it did nationalize every congressional election. And I'm not sure that's a good thing, because as we move into the era of everything being nationalized through social media, people are getting more and more contentious. One of the things that prevents politics from being so contentious is when you think, OK, what they do in D.C. doesn't really affect me. What do I care what some congressperson in North Carolina has to say? They're not my congressperson. I only care what happens in my local community. Or if I do care about that, it's at least very secondary. When you nationalize every election and every issue becomes paramount and every issue is something that everybody is supposed to weigh in on, what that ends up doing is it makes all politics homogenous, meaning that you end up with a right-wing position and a left-wing position and, and no in-between and no crosstalk and no localism. And that makes people more polarized and more angry. So there, there are upsides and downsides to, to that. This is a conversation that you and I would have a lot when we did a morning show here in LA together of, oh, of how people have made the presidency a celebrity status. And they've, in a lot of voters' minds, like that is the most important thing. And that's why everybody freaks out when Obama wins or freaks out when Trump won, because they think that that is world ending to them instead of recognizing the politics that are local. Well, the politics that are local have, have lost a lot of appeal. They're not as interesting. Most people can't name their congressperson. They certainly can't name their city council members. Five people vote for city council. And when you're living in a city like L.A., that actually makes a pretty large difference yep. considering how terribly the city of Los Angeles is governed. So that, that's been a disaster. And, and again, it, it has wiped moderation out of the parties, too, because when every issue is nationalized, you end up with everybody who's running in a purple district having to answer for AOC on the left or having to answer for Steve King on the right. And that's not the way that politics really should work because you're the congressperson for your particular district. You're not the congressperson for the United States at large. Everybody's running for president though now, right? Well, uh, yeah, that's true. All Except right. me. <laughs> <laughs> the MLB playoffs are right around the corner. This is our next question. I know you're a big fan of baseball. What are your predictions for the, the is that the National League? Yes, the National, they're asking about the National League. Ball. Yeah, they're, they're asking about the NLCS and the ALCS. Okay. That's the championship series. So 
The World Series will be, in my opinion, Houston and the Dodgers. I think that that will be the World Series. Uh, I think Houston will win again. Houston has the best pitching staff. It is not particularly close. Uh, so I'll take Houston. I think probably the ALCS will be the Yankees versus Houston. I believe that's how it will match up. Uh, and then in the NLCS, uh, I'll be honest with you, I haven't followed the National League nearly as closely, um, but I believe maybe Dodgers Nationals, maybe. Okay. Go anyway, Dodgers. I don't even know if that's I don't know if that's how the brackets are working this time yet. Honestly, okay. I'm not sure it's been completely decided yet because there's still a few games left in the season. But everyone knows that you're not a Dodgers fan. Uh, no, I mean, I'll, I'll let my kid be a Dodgers fan. Really? Yeah, my kids can be. So they, 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 they will be White Sox fans. Okay. Because that's our team. And it's an American <laughs> League team. But there's the American League and the National League. Okay. And I, I would like for them to grow up. Like, I grew up without having a hometown team. And so I have an instinctive drive whenever I go to a ball game of any sort to root for the visiting team. Because yeah. I've spent my entire life rooting for the visiting team. So I'm not, like, I don't know what to do when I'm in a stadium and we're all rooting for the same team. Like, it's a, I'm like, no, this is not right. This is not right. Somebody's got to root for those other guys because that's how I grew up. And politically, that's how we are. Any, anyway. I was like, yeah. this is just actually your entire life. This is my entire life. So for, you recognize so, this. A hundred percent. So so my kids, I feel like it would be nice for, like they can go to Angel Stadium and root for the White Sox. Yeah. But I feel like it'd be nice for them to go to Dodger Stadium and be able to actually enjoy when a member of the home team hits a home run. I can, like I, I literally get a sinking feeling when I go to Dodger Stadium and a Dodger hits a home run. And I don't hate the Dodgers. It's just because I have this natural inclination to be like, oh, those that, that visiting team, they're really put upon. <laughs> the only thing I know about sports ball is when the Thunder came to Oklahoma City. And because Oklahoma has no pro teams, yes. it was really cool and really unifying how the entire state was rooting for a team. Right. And I and Just so like I, they will now root for, for Elizabeth Warren. And also no. former Oklahoman. No, Cherokee people, Cherokee tribe, but I don't know that she has their votes locked down. Nah, I, yeah, she might. She might have some trouble there. Also, I, I, I'm familiar with when the Thunder broke up a three MVP team for no apparent reason. That was, that was a smart move. Anyway, you're the beard hardened. Why? All right. Hi, Ben. How would you go about pitching the American Constitution to the British? Because we're better. Okay, here's how I would do it. Remember that time when we broke away from you and then created the greatest country in the history of the world, and you're not a part of it. Remember that. I, I'm actually I'm actually an Anglophile. Like I'm very grateful for the heritage of Anglo-American law. I'm very grateful for Magna Carta. Uh, I have a lot of fondness for Great Britain. I love British history. Um, I will say that a, a constitution that that is focused in on checks and balances and has the idea of guaranteed rights lying at its center is is a very very good idea and has preserved a lot more liberty, particularly in the area of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment, than has Great Britain. Like I have a lot of respect for the parliamentary system, but. It just has not preserved central liberties the same way that the United States has. And people should go watch your Sunday special with Daniel Hannon. Right, that one's great. Also, if you want to see me talk to another Brit, Piers Morgan, that was good times. That was really good. That one was fun. Piers is a good guy. I like Piers. I actually listened to it Mm -hmm. on Spotify. People can listen on Spotify, which I love because I can do it in the car. It's amazing. And then I went back and watched it because I wanted to see the body language. Yeah, I I like Piers. I mean, the the weird thing, I mean, you know this because we're friends. Yeah. The weird thing is I actually kind of am nice to people and kind of like them. I just d- destroyed my brand. Only so. when that setting is turned on, though. Like, it has to be turned on Well, if I have to choose between hanging out with any... Well, it, listen, if I, have to, if I have a choice between hanging out with my family and anyone else, yeah. there is no chance I'm going to hang out with anyone else. Yeah. Like, I am best friends with, the, with my business partner at this business. We have never, in 10 years, been out to dinner by ourselves when we were not on a business trip and spouses were, were not yeah. available. Like, it's never happened. Yeah. Ever. Like, I don't... I, I get invited to, to dinners all the time. You're like not interested. I, I mean, you and I have been friends for a very, very long time. When have we ever seen each other outside of work absent our spouses? Oh, never. Never. It's never happened. No. Ever. So, yeah. No. That's not a thing. Even functions. You don't come to Krause House barbecues. No. no. It, that's right. I mean. <laughs> it's like baby showers and birthday parties. Yeah, exactly. And if, and if it is something where we come, it's always like Your the whole family there. comes. Exactly. exactly. All right. Hello, Ben. Big fan. What, if anything, can we do to bring Adam Schiff to justice? Well, we round up a posse. And then we go down to CNN headquarters. And we find a pup tent. And Adam Schiff is in there because that's all he does all day long. Just sits in the pup tent. And then we round him up and we bring him to justice. That, that's all I got. I mean, Is that your impersonation of the people where I'm from? No, that's... Okay, that, just checking. I, I don't know. I mean, you're trying to there are cowboys it? from places that are not in Oklahoma. Yeah, but the best ones are from Oklahoma. I don't... Some would say the best ones are from Dallas. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> How can we get Congress back on track? Well, man, this is the age-old question. They've done nothing but waste our money. Answer, stop giving the money. 
there you have it. No, really, that, that is the solution. The answer is that Congress should not have so much power. They should not be able to legislate on as much. The states should be the central repositories of lawmaking and local governments should be the central repositories of lawmaking. Yes, Congress will continue to waste your money because wherever there is money to waste, people will do it. I mean, there has never yet been an institution with lots of money where people don't waste lots of money. Like, that's just the way that it is. Because, also because in government, there's no profit incentive, right? Mm -hmm. You can have a big company and it doesn't waste lots of money because if it did, it would be bankrupt. The government never goes bankrupt. The nice thing is that if they waste lots of money, they know where that came from and it is from you. So they can just keep taking your money. All right. How, okay, favorite era to study in American history? Oh, man. So when I was younger, when I was a, when I was a kid, it was Revolutionary War history. I loved really? that. Loved it. Yeah, I was super into it. As folks who are fans know, I used to dress up as John Adams for Halloween every single year. And sing and for him And sing all the songs from 1776, of course. I know all of them and all the words and all of it. Uh, so Revolutionary War history, I was big into. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in middle school, I was big into Civil War history. So I, And that, that lasted probably through, I mean, I still find Civil War and pre-Civil War history absolutely riveting, mm -hmm. not just because of the inherent drama of a country is going to fight itself, but also because of the moral, the, the moral ambiguity of a lot of the stances that were being taken, like Stephen Douglas's stance on slavery. He's anti-slavery, but also he wants to keep the country together. The, the evolution of the country in that period is so is fascinating. Uh, you know, the dark side of, of the American experiment is is absolutely worth studying. So all of that is riveting. Uh, when I was in college, I was big into the progressive era. So, uh, you know, I would study Woodrow Wilson a lot and TR. Um, you know, now uh, I was into, I was doing a lot of World War II yeah. era stuff. Um, but it really depends. I mean, I, I read history incessantly. So I'm, there are certain areas of history that are sort of undercovered. Like everything basically from, the Civil War to 1900 is wildly undercovered. Yep. And there's a really, I just recommend on the show, there's a great biography of Grant that's out right now by uh, Ron Chernow that's really fascinating. And a lot of that is about the post-Civil War era and the radical Republicans and the attempt to reconstruct the South and how that failed, one of the great tragedies in American history. I love history. It's fascinating stuff. So it's hard for me to choose one particular era. I can, and usually when people ask that, I ask, give me an era, and then I'll try and give you a book that's good about that era. And you're like an encyclopedia or library. Like I mean, I, I have something. I mean, I, I feel bad now. My wife is doing the Conmarie method, and uh, we were talking about this before, and I'm thinking about which books to get rid of. Yeah. Um, and I want to make a list of the books that I have at least so I can refer back in my mind to where I got stuff. Um, but I have at home something like 7,500 books. And so I have, to, I have to go through all of that and figure that out. That many books? Yeah, and I probably read... 80% of them, maybe. Wow. Uh, maybe 85%. So when you walk into a bookstore mm -hmm. or you're perusing online, mm -hmm. what makes you, have you ever gone to buy a book that you didn't intend to buy and what made you buy that book? So I, I used to do this a lot when I was in law school. Mm -hmm. So when you, now that you, now you have kids, you know, once you have kids, you have no time for anything. Don't right? go to a bookstore with kids. <laughs> well, it, I mean, my kids actually like it, but my kids are My nerds. kids like it too. But then it's also you have to put all the books back. Well, that's true. My son, yeah, my son's a wreck. I mean, he'll just like burn down the store. But <laughs> my daughter will sit there and she really enjoys yeah. it. But, um, you know, when I when I was in law school, every spare minute, basically, because there was nothing to do in yeah. Cambridge in the winter. I mean, it's just dark and cold and terrible. Yeah. And so every spare minute, I would just walk down to the Harvard bookstore uh, or some of the used bookstores they had down there. And I would just browse. Uh, and the, usually I would go to a particular section and... Yeah, I would use the blurbs on the back of the book as sort of a guide as to at least where it was going to stand politically if it was a nonfiction book. When it came to fiction, uh, I would usually go through, you know, top 100 lists and see what people had to say. Yeah. Um, and then I would check to see if the premise was interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so that's why if I look at top 100 lists of top 100 novels, I'll have read most of them. Uh, you know, but I do the same thing with movies. Like if, yeah. I, if I wanted to watch a movie when I was back in college or law school, I would go to the AFI top 100 list and I would just watch something on the list. So I've literally seen every single movie on the AFI Top 100. Uh, and that's, <laughs> and that, I mean, it's not a bad way to do it. I mean, at least you, you've read the stuff that's supposed to be great, even if it doesn't end up being great or seen that sort of stuff. But it's a cool thing to go off of then. Yeah. I mean, now when I go to a bookstore, it's more like, is there an author who I like? Uh, and is there a new book out by that author? So there's a book I'm reading right now called Deep River by Carl Marlantes. And I, I think he's, he wrote a book called Matterhorn about the Vietnam War. This book is about logging in the, in the late 19th century in Oregon. But he's a great author. I mean, he can really write. And so for him, it was like a new book came out. Wall Street Journal book review section is the single best thing in print. It's great. The review section is just fantastic. And so every Shabbat, my parents who subscribe bring that over. And I read that through. And I get a lot of my new book recommendations from there. Cool. All right. 
In a recent conversation about the Second Amendment with a friend, I mentioned that it is important because it is a right protected by the Constitution, to which he responded, quote, but the Constitution is old, close quote. How would you have responded to him? By laughing hysterically at his stupidity. That's, that's, that's the dumbest response ever. You know what is old? A lot of stuff. And you know what's good? A lot of stuff. And you know what's dumb? A lot of new stuff. Like, why is the age of a thing or an idea somehow representative of its quality? There are a lot of dumb new ideas. The idea that a man can become a woman is idiotic. This is a new idea. You know what's an old idea? That a man cannot become a woman. That happens to be far more intelligent. You know what's an old idea? The stuff in the Ten Commandments. Seems pretty intelligent to me. Fine like, wine? It, yeah, I mean, there, there's Vintage lots of stuff. Clothes? <laughs> Watches? I mean, there's... Antiques? Right, that, but in terms of principles, I mean, my whole book is about the idea that a smart person looks at the past mm -hmm. and tries to cull from the past what is quality and then carve away what is not. A stupid person looks at the past and says, all those old idiots, and they didn't know anything, and if I had been them, I'd be saying exactly the same thing I'm saying today. And it's a really stupid, irritating, and juvenile way of reading history. This is why you see people, and they're like, oh, well, George Washington held slaves. I'm a better person than George Washington. It's like, nope, you're not. I'm sorry to tell you this. You're probably not smarter, and you're probably not better, and you didn't live then, so you don't know. And this idea that you would have, you would have been there, and you'd been, you would have said to George Washington, you know what's wrong with you? You're not for gay rights if you were living in, like, 1780. Sure. I'm sure that's what you would have said. Also, in your fantasy world, you get green energy from unicorn farts. It's like, what, like what, what, are you, what are you talking about? People exist in the context in which they live. And there's something also deeply self-flattering about that and deeply insulting to people who live in parts of the world that disagree with your values, by the way. You know, you have all, all these people who are like, oh, yeah, all cultures are equal and all ideas are equal. Well, the same people will then suggest that their ideas are so eminently correct and so eminently obvious that they could have born, been born at any time in any place and they would have held those values regardless. It's like, well, guess what? You know, the number of people who hold your values across the vast span of human history is like seven. Really, like the, the people who are living right now, some of them hold your values. Not the vast majority of humanity. The vast majority of humanity does not hold your values. And so maybe you should think about how did your values arise? Where did they come from? What are the roots of those values? Even the values that you think are different and new. Very often they have roots and values that are older. So the, the roots of, of same-sex marriage, for example, that the, the argument, the libertarian argument is I'm not hurting anybody. And so it's nobody else's business what I do. Well, that is a, that is a, a value that is found in a belief in individual rights, right? an individual worth and value. And that, in turn, is found in a belief that you are an individual human being with unique value. And that's actually a biblical value. So you can take biblical values in a wide variety of directions. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that the current interpretation of the biblical value is, is necessarily correct. But if you don't examine the roots of your own values and you just pretend that you tabula rasa came up with your own values, you're being purposefully ignorant and self-flattering and extraordinarily arrogant. But back to that constitutional question, though, of, oh, we shouldn't follow it because it's old. Yeah, that's a dumb... So, again... The, the age, the, the question is, can you make an argument against the, the value on its merits, mm -hmm. not on the basis of its age? Like, there are very few things you can make an argument against it on the basis of its age. Um, right. Buildings, right? <laughs> you know, food that's been left out too long, like maybe political candidates, depending on who they are. But other than that, not much. All right. What are your thoughts on academic freedom and free speech on the professional side, or, or sorry, the professorial side of education? So my general belief is that you should not be fired for expressing your views as a professor. I do not, and that holds true if you're on the right, and that holds true if you are on the left. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't think that that should be the case. Now, do I think that students have to go to a college or take the classes of people who, who you know, are providing these viewpoints? No, I don't. And I think that universities can be responsive to market forces, meaning that you don't want a Nazi teaching. on. I, I think there's a limit to that. I think yeah. that the universities can draw certain limits. We don't want a Nazi teaching on campus because he's a Nazi and we disapprove of those values. But as a general rule, once you hire somebody and the person says something in line with what they've said before, I find that difficult. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't like that in general and I don't like it in academia too. And so I've actually said, like there, there have been professors who are full-on socialists. They'll say something. People protest, want them removed. And I've said, I'm not really in favor of that. I don't want them removed. They were hired as a socialist. They've been a socialist. You just notice now, like, get over it. If the person suddenly converted into becoming a communist, that sort of changes the math. But uh, honestly, I think everybody needs to, to lighten up a little bit and recognize that a different viewpoint is not necessarily threatening to you. But do you think that we should ask for universities to have kind of like an affirmative action of political thought? Like no, especially I, publicly funded one? So I, I don't think that, that there needs to be an affirmative action of political thought. I do think that the, there needs to be a non-discrimination policy with regard to conservative thought, which is a slightly different thing. 
So affirmative action is the idea that you should get additional points for being conservative. My point is you shouldn't get points taken away from you for being conservative, which is really how it works at universities. All right. Boomer Sooner. Hey, hey, Beat Tech. I like that. Whoever that subscriber is, I heart you forever. Ben, do you have advice on discovering one's individual purpose? I understand my capacity, but struggling to find my purpose in the world. Oh, well, this is a shameless book plug for sure. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, that, that is obviously a reference to the model that I lay out in the right side of history, where I say that if you want meaning, you have to have individual purpose, individual capacity, communal purpose, and communal capacity. So communal purpose very often is driven by sort of the values in your community. If you're in a Jewish community, that creates a communal purpose. Uh, and the capacity is driven by what the community can do together. Individual, va uh, individual capacity is driven by your belief that you have free will, that you can go out and that you can do something valuable in the world, uh, and that you have the obligation to do so. Individual purpose if finding individual purpose, to me, is about fulfilling duty. And so you have to find the things that you believe you have a duty to. Mm. Uh, I think that people focus a lot too much on, on rights when it comes to purpose and very little on duty. And rights don't provide purpose. Duties provide purpose. So people make this mistake. Like, oh, well, my, my purpose is to, is to go out and have a good time or to fulfill my rights. A right, does not, a right is, just the purview, is just the field you're playing on, but it doesn't tell you which direction you're supposed to actually run toward. What do you feel a duty to do? Whom do you feel a duty to protect? So I think that a pretty good starting point in, in life is the duty to protect the innocent. Okay, And the most innocent among us are children. And so that means that on a political level, the thing I'm most concerned with is making sure that my children are not harmed or damaged uh, and that others' children are not harmed or damaged. I have a duty to protect the rights of others if I want to protect my own rights. Uh, in terms of finding sort of your individual purpose in terms of what you want to do with yourself, so here I say that if you're looking for a calling, then you have to look for a confluence of three things. One, something you enjoy. Two, something that somebody's going to pay you to do. And three, something that you're good at. Mm. Right? And enjoyment should come along with not just enjoyment, but a feeling of fulfillment, a feeling like you're doing something important. Because very often, there's sort of temporary enjoyment, and then there's something you feel like is valuable every day. If you can find those three things, then you can have a career in a lot of things, but not a calling. If you can find that in a career, that's great. That's a calling. Maybe your calling is outside of work. Maybe your calling is being a parent. You know, today on my show, I played uh, what I think is one of the best scenes from any movie. And it's not in a fantastic movie, but... Well, we all, from our generation, remember this, the, the scene from Hook, yeah. where, uh, where Robin Williams finally realizes that he's Peter Pan because he remembers his happy thought, and his happy thought is having kids. That was my dad's thing. When my dad was growing up, he, he was asked in his class, what, is you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, a dad. And you can certainly find purpose in being a parent and then figuring out, building your life around that. What sort of values do you want to pass on to your kids? And that makes you think seriously about what sort of values are important to you, what values do you think are important to the world, and that provides you with a sense And what you're uh, going to do to provide for that family. Exactly. So do people, you know, there, there's this tremendous urge in our society to run away from duty. The, the duty is burdensome and it's, and it's hard and it's annoying. It can be so fulfilling. The duty is the only thing that gives you purpose because if there is no duty, there is no purpose. And you can ask anybody who's ever been in the military. I mean, they, they will be the first people to tell you. And those are people who have taken on way more duty than I ever will. So uh, the, the most purposeful people I know are people who have taken on an enormous amount of duty. All right. In the wake of the Ukraine scandal, whose only scandalous element appears to be the mere existence of Rudy Giuliani, is it time to admit that the deep state is real? So the, my, my problem with the deep state was always just the, the generalized implication that everybody who's working for the, the State Department is a member of the deep state. But if the idea is that there are people who are working in executive branch agencies who, cannot, who have not been fired and are holdovers and who have agendas of their own, of course that's true. Of course that's true. I'm always a little wary of the misapplication of labels, and very often I'll see fake news applied to things that are not fake news, or deep state being used as an excuse for everything, mm -hmm. up to and including whatever dumb thing Trump tweeted today. And, and that I don't buy. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've been saying on the show that if, indeed, there was an intelligence whistleblower who was being supplied information that was non-criminal, and then instead of taking it up the chain, he actually supplied that to Adam Schiff, which it appears may have happened back yeah. in August, then that's a serious problem, and that should obviously be investigated and looked into. As far as the scandal... You know, I think that there's not evidence of a quid pro quo at this time. In fact, the evidence seems to be the Ukrainians didn't even know that the military aid was being withheld. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much evidence of a cover-up because we have everything. Um, the, there, there are a couple outstanding questions that I think, frankly, we should all want answers to. One is, why was the Ukrainian aid withheld in the first place? And two is, what the hell is Rudy Giuliani doing? So I understand that, that, that Donald Trump deployed Rudy Giuliani as part of his campaign to go investigate what was happening in Ukraine. The problem is, if Rudy Giuliani is his personal guy, then is he abusing his office to tell Ukraine to work with his personal guy? That may not be impeachable because that's not really a crime. Mm -hmm. 
Because, again, if there's no quid pro quo, if it's not like work with my guy or else, then that's not a crime. It's just ugly. But when Rudy Giuliani then says, well, I wasn't sent there as Trump's personal guy. I was sent there by the State Department. Then it's like, okay, wait. So are we now using State Department resources to send Trump's personal lawyer to Ukraine? An intermediary to try to cover up something that was going on that was shady. Right. Or, or even if it's just President Trump is, is using taxpayer dollars to pay his personal attorney to go do his personal dirty work, that could be theoretically abusive funding, for example. So Rudy Giuliani, never, or like, not even one time. Like, what you went... How do you go from Michael Cohen? You're like, you know what? I need a better attorney than Michael Cohen. And you go to Rudy. Like, Rudy, good mayor, bad lawyer. Like, this is not, not smart, not smart. We'll see. We'll see how it all plays out, obviously. Won't be so fun. How do you find time to read so many books? And do you speed read? Um, so, because I don't know speed reading methods, I don't mm. really know what that would mean. Yeah. I am a fast reader. I do read quickly. Um, I will say that nonfiction books, because I've read so many of them, I know how to read them meaning I can skim a little bit and still pick up 95% of the content. Um, mo- quick hints on reading a nonfiction book. Read the, conclu- read the introduction, read the conclusion, read the chapter headings and the first couple paragraphs. And then if they are broken down by category, then very often nonfiction books, a lot of nonfiction books are filler. A lot of nonfiction books, it's like, here's the thesis. And now there's one million facts to back it up. Well, that's good for referencing. Mm-hmm. Right? It's good if you have to write about it later or you need to go back and you need to you know, try to think of the facts that back the, the proposition. Maybe you read the proposition and it inherently makes sense to you and you just move on. Or maybe it's something you disagree with and you want to see the evidence and so you read it. But very often it's like, here's one million examples of the chief proposition. It's like, no, I got the point. I don't need to be beat over the head with it. So I can read nonfiction a lot faster than I can read fiction because with fiction, the words matter a little bit more. Um, Shabbat is when I read. Uh, So during the week, right before bed, probably half an hour before bed, I read. Um, During the day, maybe a little bit if I have time, although these days not at all. Um, Shabbat, Friday night, between Friday night and Saturday night, I usually put away at least two books. Uh, the the What's know, the average like page reading, though? Uh, I don't know. Somewhere between four and 500 pages, maybe. So it was really funny to uh, a lot of people here when you recorded your book on tape for your New York Times bestselling book, The Right Side of History. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, the the studio where you went to record it, yes. they kind of guesstimated the time that it would take. It's like 20 hours. And your yeah. assistant and I were like, no. Yeah, we knocked that thing out in about seven and a half hours. It was, and it, they were amazed at how quickly yeah. you read through it. And I think part of it was because you are a fast talker, which people talk about all the time. Although I read it slower than I normally do, but yeah, you read it slower than you. But even then, it, it was, was still it's still. And pains, I yeah. also think another thing is is because of the way your brain work works, you were just able to read it. But I think another reason was because you actually wrote it. Yes, I think a well, lot I of people that they I write see all my own in stuff. there. That yeah. are doing the readings. Well, that's that's certainly true. Stuff. That's certainly true. I mean, I know people I've ghostwritten for, and they, it had to be in their contract that they had to have the book read to them physically <laughs> before they signed off on it because they wouldn't read their own book. <laughs> and you didn't want a situation like I remember that. I think it was was it Charles Barkley? There was there was some famous author who was on a show, and they read him a section from his own book, and he was like, "I never said that." And they were reading him from his own book, but he never read it, so he didn't know. So, <laughs> write your own books or make sure they're read to you. Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. All right. Benjamite. Wow. Okay. All right. Like Vegemite? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a pro-life libertarian, and people think by default I'm coming from a religious point of view. Could you please lay out a libertarian secular pro-life argument? Why are people in general more conservative on issues pertaining to crime, immigration, and terrorism, but extremely liberal on the economy, entitlements, and spending? Okay, so there are two separate questions. Yeah, yeah. So there's the, okay, so the libertarian question. Nothing irritates me more and when leftists flatter themselves by saying that the pro-life movement is based in religion. Mm -hmm. It is so irritating because I have never cited Psalms to back my case. I have never cited Deuteronomy to back my case. I don't do that. You know why? Because that's not an effective argument. That's an appeal to authority that a lot of folks don't actually agree with. So that is not a purposeful argument. The libertarian argument for abortion is very simple. Libertarians believe that if I kill you, that should be policed. And the pro-life argument is that me killing a fetus is killing a human being. Mm-hmm. It is killing, it is snuffing out a human life. It is that simple. And then the argument is based in biology. Human life begins at conception. Now, there is no good place to draw a line in the development of a fetus where it goes from being a not human life to being a human life. You can say there's a point later on where it looks more like a baby. You can say that a zygote is not a baby or an embryo is not a baby. You can say, you can say all of those things. Mm-hmm. That's fine because baby is a malleable standard. But there's no question that the category human life begins with sperm and egg and the conception of the child. That, that, there is no other scientific standard for the inception of human life. And if you want to make the case 
that certain human lives are more valuable than other human lives, you run into a bit of a problem. And also, even if you were to argue that, let's say that there are shades of gray with regard to abortion, that it, that it's more obviously wrong to kill a full-term baby than it is to take a Plan B pill. Um, because you see that, you know, here you're, it's, a, it's still a cluster of rather undifferentiated cells, and there it's, it looks like a baby, and, and all of that. Okay, well, gradations of wrong are still wrong. That does not mean that it is now right. Uh, and the countervailing interests are simply not important enough to override the right of somebody to live. It doesn't mean they're not important. Sometimes they're very important. Sometimes you're talking about tremendous emotional pain. Sometimes you're talking about economic distress. That does not override the right of a human life to exist. So that's, that's the basic libertarian argument. Again, that is not a reference to religion. So folks on the left, please stop being intellectually dishonest and arguing that people who are pro-life are rooting their views in religion. It's absolute nonsense. Frankly, people who are viewing, the only people I know on the, on the abortion issue who root their views in religion are people who root their views in the religion that says that a baby is not a baby and a human life is not a human life unless I believe it is. That's a completely arbitrary standard that makes you God as opposed to science, the defining feature. And the second part of his question, asking about, I think it was the... If you want to scroll back up. Yeah, it was the... I don't know. Uh, like, gone. The, <laughs> is it, it's gone forever. So sorry, yeah. dear subscriber. You only got one of your questions answered. But not that many people get, a, like, two questions. Right, you, should, you should feel good about yourself. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, You'll at live. least you got right. a question. I, was, was it just about, like, why people have a harder time? It has something to do with the economy. And I it did have to do with, the like, libertarian argument in the economy and government. It's, it's, it's over. Whatever. If you guys dig it up again, let us know. I haven't had a Red Bull today, so. And I'm on hour four of broadcasting. <laughs> but on that note, we still have time in this episode of The Conversation, and then you get to go home That'd and nice. make yourself a, a better it up. Woo! Your, your little girly drinks that you like. It's Shabbos time. With the umbrellas oh, yeah. and stuff. But our conversation is live for everyone to watch, but only subscribers get to ask the questions. How do you become a subscriber? Well, head on over to the brand spanking new dailywire.com. Be sure to click the link in the video of the description to ask questions or sign up. And be sure to tune in for next month's episode featuring the oldest man alive, Andrew Clavin. <laughs> We're just going to go with that. All right. I like it. It's good. All right. Hi, Ben. How do you deal with people not liking you because you're conservative in your friend and family groups? Boop, 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 boop. I mean, that, that is the answer. <laughs> Can we make that a GIF? Like, let's <laughs> make that a GIF. the sound effect and everything. Yep. Like, it's, I mean, that, that is the answer. I mean, if you don't like me because my political viewpoint. I'm surprised go, you didn't do, like, the fishing. Uh, right, exactly. The jack-in-the-box. Yeah. <laughs> like, really, like, they're not your friend if they don't appreciate that you can have a different political view. And if they're in your family and they don't appreciate your politics so much that they treat you badly, then so what? You know, family is an accident to birth. Being a jerk is is who somebody decides to be. So I, I, I have very little sympathy for this. I mean, I, I hang out. It is one of my pet peeves. I not only hang out with a lot of people with whom I disagree politically, I will defend many people I disagree with politically. I do it on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a New York Times reporter who reached out to me this week because there is a, there's a feminist named Megan Murphy. And Megan Murphy was barred from Twitter because she had suggested that Jessica Tarlop, that was that the name? No, it's Jessica. What was the name of the um, the wax my genitals human in Canada? Oh, I um, I went blank. I, I, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't remember. It's not Jessica. Tarlop. Jessica Eve. Thank you, thank you. Wouldn't want to slur Jessica Tarlop. Anyway, it's just Jessica Eve. Uh, this this Megan Murphy had refused to label Jessica Eve by his proper pronoun. Yeah, uh, and so she was banned. Megan was from Twitter. And so I reached out to her and I was like, listen, if there's any way I can help, let me know. Yeah. You know, this is nonsense. And so this New York Times reporter called me because Megan had mentioned this. And he's like, do you do this a lot? Like, do you reach out to people who have been canceled a lot? And I was like, yes. Yeah. And he's like, well, what do you say? And I said, well, I'm not going to tell you because I think that you're part of this culture. And he said, can you tell me who you talked to? I said, no. No. Because then your, your entire intent is to stop these conversations from happening so that you can shame people just... for even talking to me. Right. That's the goal. The goal is to toxify Anybody who has a conversation with me, it's one of the... It, to stop the human kindness completely. It's, it's not allowed. I have been, I promise you, I have, I have had conversations with extraordinarily high-ranking people on the left, extraordinarily high-ranking people in the Democratic Party. And it's always fine. Mm -hmm. It's always fine. They're human beings. We hold basic American values together, I think, I hope. Right, at least enough human you're talking right, to, it, it, Right, it, at, at least enough to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to speaking out front, nothing. Right. This is this is what I call the, the happy birthday conundrum. Yep. Right. So on my birthday every year, I get a bunch of texts from people who are very prominent on the left mm -hmm. and people who are journalists, people in politics. I'll be like, happy birthday, Ben. And then on Twitter, nothing. 
Why? Because they're afraid that if they label me a human being, then they will be excoriated for the great crime of having acknowledged I'm a human being. I don't care. I'll say happy birthday to anybody. Yeah. Right? Unless you're a Nazi, in which case go die. Right? And <laughs> I mean, I mean, don't die. No one should die unless you're committing a crime. But if you're a Nazi, like, yeah, go take a, a, a long walk off a short pier. Except for you, right? Like, or an Islamic radical or something, a terrorist, then I'll say happy birthday to anybody. Yeah. Like when, when Chelsea Manning, who I totally disagree with and think is actually a traitor to the country. Yeah. When Chelsea Manning had a, a, a terrible breakdown on Twitter and was threatening to kill himself, I tweeted out like, your life still has value. Don't do this. Like be a human being, be a human being. And if your family can't be a human being to you, they, they're really not your family. They're not treating you like family. Go somewhere else for Thanksgiving. Seriously. All right. Hey, Ben, what is, ooh, this is a good one. What is your favorite character from the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Well, everybody's is Aragorn. I have the Aragorn sword at home. So that that's the thing. Um, <laughs> Nerd alert. Yeah, I, my kids have been trying to get a hold of it, and it's extremely dangerous. So I've been <laughs> trying to keep them away from it. You should um, just hang it over like that magnificent fireplace you have oh, man, in, in your great lair. Great fireplace. <laughs> great fireplace. Um, but the... Uh, the, the the most fascinating character, the character that I that I'm interested in the most, uh-huh. uh, is dead by the end of the first movie. So, spoiler alert! Um, but Baromir is is mm-hmm. an extremely interesting character because he's the most human character, and the whole yep. story of the the whole story of Lord of the Rings is how human beings are seduced by power and the possibility of power, and the only way to deal with the possibility of power is to subsume it and and extinguish it, and instead give up your desire for power. And um, and Baromir doesn't, and so he pays a price, even though he's trying to do the right thing using the ring. Uh, and that that's fascinating, and that's really the conundrum of the story. He's an intricate character. Yeah. So my daughter, whenever she tries to, like, gibberish talk, I'm like, listen, if you're going to come up with a language, you can literally be like, love means this in English, and love means this in your little language. You can be like J.R.R. Tolkien and create your own language, and then you can sell a best-selling trilogy. Oh, and you are you trying to monetize your children? I'm like... <laughs> Such a Hollywood yeah, mom. Exactly. But no, I'm more like, you know how kids do that silly thing where they like like have silly language and they're mm-hmm. like, well, so-and-so did it. And I'm like, no, it's not English. By the way, so people should know, house. like I am here to be the harsh one and Elisha appears to be the kind one. When it comes to our children, Elisha is way harsher with her kids than I am. It is not close. Like, I'm a sucker for my kids. They turn me into mush. I have a hard time they punishing them. They get away with too much. Elisha is like, get out the paddle. Like... I, you go go to the closet. Like it's, it's Alicia, the homeschool like Bible Alicia's belt brutal. in me. Alicia's brutal. She's like, you call me ma'am. And I'm like, what the When I used to babysit kids, I'd say that they need to call me ma'am. Right. Like you, it's instilling proper manners and respect for I, authority, Ben. I, I, listen, I, I make my kids call adults by Mr. and Mrs. They're not allowed yeah. to call adults by their first name. Yeah. But you are way harsher with your kids than I am. And it may turn out better. I mean, I don't know. But it's um, I think yours will be smarter, but mine will be cuter and polite. I mean, I'm not going to give up cuter. <laughs> more polite, I think. You, you have me at polite. Polite, I don't think there's very much question that, that your kids will be more polite. That, right. that, is, that is undoubtedly true. Yeah. Can we share with everybody what your daughter said the other day? Oh, yeah. She turned, she turned to my wife and she said, I, I don't believe in things I can't understand. And my wife said, explain airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, owned wife, with facts and logic. By my the wife doctor. Owned, by a doctor <laughs> owning a five-year-old. Oh. And my, my daughter's the best. She's great. And she's a lot like you. It's kind of scary. Oh, yeah. She's hardcore. I would not. Like, in a zombie apocalypse, I used to fear that my son would not live. He will live. My son will absolutely live. He turned three, and and something turned in him. And now, if you cross him, he will burn you to the ground. Leah, from the time she was born, I mean, like, my my, my daughter, from the time she was a very, very small child, it was was very obvious. She had, like, the stare of scorn. Yep. She was my kid. And now my son, he's he's made the turn. You think that she can glare a zombie into total annihilation? She's hardcore. She's okay. very hardcore. All right. <laughs> Greetings, Ben. You've often talked about the government getting out of marriage entirely. I definitely agree. But what would you say is the best argument for it to appeal to the masses? Government sucks at everything. They make your life worse. And your relationship with your significant other is between you and your significant other. So if you want that governed by a contract, that's a you issue. That's a you problem, as I'm fond of saying and have been pummeled for saying. It's a you problem. You have a contract with your, like, I have a ketubah. It is an actual contract with my wife. It is a marriage dissolution contract. It, it spells out my duties, and it spells out what happens if, God forbid, we get divorced. In fact, this is a very funny story. So when my, so in the Jewish community, apparently, I never thought this was a thing, but apparently in certain communities, it is a thing to haggle over what the divorce settlement looks like. So you actually write that into the So it's ketubah. almost like a prenup. It's a prenup, basically. Yeah. Uh, and you, uh, and so... Some people like really haggle over this. Yeah. And my father-in-law one day sits me down before we're married. And he's like, I want to have a serious conversation with uh-huh. you. And I was like, 
okay? And I was kind of worried, like, what is this going to be? And he's like, I want to discuss the amount in the ketubah. And I said, all right. And he says, well, do, do you want to, you have any idea what it should be? I was like, I don't care. Put whatever you want. I'm not getting divorced. You know, we're getting married. We're staying married. Yeah. Put whatever, you, literally any number. I don't care. And he says, okay, but, but really, like, what do you want to suggest? I said, I, I seriously don't care. Put $10 million. And he, and he goes, and he, and he laughs, and he's super happy. He goes, she's worth a million dollars. About his own daughter. <laughs> oh, man, I'm glad I didn't have to do that because I'm priceless. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but let's be real about this. Your parents would have been like a cow. <laughs> You're from Oklahoma. They'd been like a fresh cow, not an old one, one that still is able to some be milked. Some laying hens. Yeah, exactly. Get some laying hens. Here's a chicken, a cow, and a pitchfork. Pheasants. Yeah, Eric didn't. Eric didn't have to go to the mat for you on this one. A really good wild boar. Yeah, exactly. To mount on the living room. <laughs> Screw you. <laughs> All right. This this amazing Daily Wire subscriber says, I know it's sort of old news now, that but that everyone is talking about the impeachment of Donald Trump, but what is your opinion on the vape ban? So, I mean, my honest opinion overall, and I, I want to study it more closely because I honestly haven't paid too much attention to it, uh, is that it seems like a moral panic to me. I mean, based on the sheer number of people who vape and the sheer number of people who have actually been hurt by vaping, mm -hmm. uh, that seems like a not huge number. With that said, I do happen to personally know somebody who nearly died from vaping. So the, it's, uh, I've seen that it can damage people, uh, but it seems to me that like most, as a libertarian, like most other products, if you choose to use a product and then you are hurt by the product, then that's kind of on you. Uh, and so I'm not in favor of mass banning of products unless they are inherently dangerous. It doesn't seem to me from the data that I've seen that vaping is inherently dangerous, that it mm -hmm. can be used apparently as a way to get off of cigarettes for a lot of people. But again, I'm going to plead ignorance on this one. That's sort of my half-assed take. I don't really have a deeper take until I've actually studied the stats. It's kind of I kind of view it as like the if you choose to ride in the car without your seatbelt on and then you get. Hit, hurt worse or die in a car accident. Right. Kind of on you for... Right, but you got to buckle up your kids. Yeah, you know, like that, that That seems right. Yep. All right. Howdy, Ben. Oh, I hope this is Noki or someone from the South. <laughs> My name is William. You get and over I... this. Like, it can't be every single letter. Elite. You know what? Normal Americans like you, too. They're not just like coastal elitists that listen to the Ben Shapiro show. Listen, so you can't, people like, in normal America... All the people in middle America... Are you kidding? People in middle America are the best. Okay, so people okay. in middle America are the best. I told you my Oklahoma story. Yes. The first time I visited Oklahoma. Yes. I was walking down the street and... Okay, so if you're from L.A., you know. You walk down the street. If someone catches your eye, you immediately look away because you don't want to get cut. Right? You, you, you don't know if this person is crazy. Like, they might kill you. So, you. so instead, you look away. I was walking down the street in Oklahoma City. I was hosting a local radio show when I was, like, 18. And this lady catches my eye. And she looks at me. And I start to look away. And she goes, howdy. I called my father. And I said, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what this place like, is. I'm not fake. You weren't famous enough yet that she knew who you were. Oh, no, I was obscure. And it was yeah. like, this is just, like people are nice and they say hello to each other. Yep. And I'm not scared. What's going on? <laughs> Bring me home. <laughs> so. Dennis Prager, I feel like when I first met him and he said, where are you from? Because you're not from here. Because he could tell. And I said, I'm from Oklahoma. He said, the nicest people I've ever met are from Oklahoma. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, Ben has a story well, like I mean, that. I mean, people, people exploit this, by the way. So uh, we used to know in my family an actress who was also a waitress. Uh -huh. And she would deliberately put on a southern accent to get bigger tips. Oh, I believe that. I had friends in New York it, that would do I, that. I will totally sign a bigger tip to somebody with a southern accent. They're inherently nicer. There's just no way around it. It's a nicer accent. All right. if you're from New York, you get a smaller tip because everyone from New York is from New York. Is a jerk. Not everyone no. is a jerk, but but let's just say but they have New York the, values. But it, <laughs> That is kind of... The, I, like most of my friends are from New York, but it's still like... It is funny, though, the mentalities or the stereotypes that you have of people. Like people assume everybody from the South is racist and all the Southern people assume everybody from New York is a jerk, right? Yeah, and, like, and some of that is true. I mean, a lot... New York is... People are much ruder, which is why... New Yorkers definitely see Trump in a way that nobody else does. Like, if yeah. you talk to somebody from New York about Trump, like, yes. yeah, he's just a taxi driver. He's like my uncle. He's like my uncle from, from Queens. Chris right? He's my, my uncle from thing. Queens. That and, kind of bravado. Exactly. And then everybody from, from Indiana is like, who is, like, what is this? What is this? <laughs> New York's a place where they sell T-shirts with the F word on them. Yep. Mm, that, that kind Without of the asterisk. Right, exactly. All right, so back to, to William. Howdy, William. He's that was a, a long digression for Howdy. He's he's a grad student, and he says his professor recently asked the class if anyone identified as a libertarian. I raised my hand, and he very respectfully asked me to consider what the libertarian solution would be for the tragedy of the commons. This was a water uh, polity class, and so what does libertarian philosophy say about common pool resources such as water? I love the show, and thanks for all that you do, and come to visit him at a and Okay, so a, a couple of different... Uh, 
solutions to the sort of tragedy of the commons problem. So the tragedy of the commons, for those who don't understand, is if there was a, let's say there's a common field where everybody can graze their cattle. And so somebody buys a bunch of cattle, grazes out the commons, and now nobody else can, can do it. So there's sort of a, there's no individual property right. It's just a piece of land held in common. You get somebody free riding and taking over the commons. Effectively speaking, they can deplete the resources at the expense of everybody else. So the libertarian would say somebody should have been assigned a property right. Right, from the very beginning, somebody should have been assigned a property right. And then that land is real valuable. So if they want to, if I want to graze my cows, you're going to have to pay me more than the price that mm-hmm. I would get to graze my cows in order for me to do that. And then you can parcel off the land. And then private property ownership solves the, the tragedy of the commons. The, the other reality is that many libertarians acknowledge that if there are externalities to your actions, then regulation is appropriate. So mm, I, I know very few libertarians, unless you're a very, very hardcore libertarian, who, who don't believe that in some circumstances, environmental regulation is necessary or that tort law should fill the gap. Meaning that if I pollute a river and you live down river of me, I have now harmed you. That's a tort, mm-hmm. right? So you should be able to sue me would be the libertarian response. Well, if I deplete the water resource to which we have a common right, then you should be able to sue me for doing that. I've dam- You have damaged me in a way or I've damaged you in a way that I was not allowed to do. So there are a couple of different ways to solve it. One is with tort law. One is with the assignment of a property right if you're a libertarian. Alrighty. So, hey, Ben, I don't know if you have heard or I don't know if I've heard your thoughts on C.S. Lewis. So what do you think about C.S. Lewis spanning from his fiction like the Chronicles of Narnia to his more theological ideas? Like so, mere Christianity? right. So mere Christianity is fantastic. Like, I think that I think that his nonfiction writing is quite beautiful mm-hmm. and elegant. And well, I don't agree with all of it. Obviously, I'm a Jew. But it, well, well I, I agree with a lot of his argument. Now? Did you notice? Yeah, it, it was it was the desire for money, wasn't it? In any case, <laughs> no, the, it's because you control all the economy and the weather and government. Yeah, well, that too. But the, uh, <laughs> uh, the his, his theological writing, I think, is quite beautiful. There's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as his fiction, I mean, I read my, my daughter already, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm-hmm. and she loved it. I mean, it's it, it really is good stuff. And, you know, while I, I appreciate his, I like his, his nonfiction a lot better than his fiction, but when I was a kid, I read all of the Narnia series, and I really enjoyed it. And it's they're books that withstand time. Yeah, and and again, it's it's one of those things where now that you're an adult and you read it, like, oh, this is a Christian allegory. But when you're <laughs> when you're when, a kid, you don't quite. I mean, get I, I read the I mean, I read the Chronicles of Narnia when I was probably seven. Yeah, and so I was like, wow, this is a cool story about a lion. And I'm like, wait, the lion's Jesus. <laughs> no, it's Liam Neeson. <laughs> All right, hi Ben. It's Give a particular a- set of skill. <laughs> That would be really funny. Should, somebody should dub that, like, <laughs> like lines from Onto Aslan. Onto Aslan. That'd be amazing. Somebody do it. We have somebody creative in the audience that could probably do that, right? Probably. All right. Hi, Ben. Given the recent climate activism debacles, do you think that it's best if the climate debate is relegated to climate scientists who have published research in the field? So, yes and no. So, the answer is, when it comes to the effects of climate change and the extent of climate change, yes. I don't know enough to debate that. You don't know enough to debate that. I do know people who know enough to debate that. I'm, I'm friends with a guy over at Caltech who d- studies this all day long. And so when I have a question, very often I will forward him the question and he'll respond with his opinion on it. And there's a pretty robust scientific debate about the upper limit and the lower limit to the possibilities of climate change, the sensitivity of, sensitivity of the climate to carbon, how weather patterns are going to change global warming because cloud cover is very difficult to model, uh, all, all those sorts of things. That is within the scientific community. The idea that I'm going to debate that with like Sally Cohen is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to the prioritization of values, meaning how much should we sacrifice now for the possibility of why in the future? That's a political conversation. That's a conversation that should be had. But that's a solution-based conversation, which is why I'm super irritated with the left, because they would much rather do this whole thing where they find the people who are like, climate change isn't existing. They're like, ah, those are the bad guys. And if only they were committed, then suddenly we'd have a Let me tell you something. If Donald Trump tomorrow came out and said, climate change is reality, I accept the IPCC report. You know what he still would not accept? Any of the crap that AOC is pushing. And that would not change the math at all, at all. Because the solutions presented by the left are completely unworkable. You know, they'll talk about an international carbon tax. Yeah, I'm sure China and India and Brazil are where all going to. Where can they sign on the di- Where can they sign on the dotted line? I'm sure that's a thing that's happening. My favorite headline was: There's this big climate march all across the world, and you have Greta Thunberg speaking at the UN. Who, like, look, she's a very enthusiastic young person, and good for her. That's not that's not her fault. It's everybody else's fault for pretending that. What she's saying has some level of depth beyond just her emotional her emotional response to an issue that she perceives. And again, that, that's not on her. That's on adults. Adults should not respond to people who are not providing solutions that way. But with that said, 
the, the New York Times reports on this, oh, it's stunning and it's wonderful and it's all a method of, if we just willed it hard enough, if we just clapped hard enough, Tinkerbell would come back to life. And, and then, the, uh, that's not a reference to Greta Thunberg, that's a reference to a climate change solution morons. So in any case, the, the, there is this, this vast out, outpouring of support. And then there's a headline in the New York Times that says, at UN Climate Change Summit, mm-hmm. no progress made. Yeah. And then the, the whole first three paragraphs is how China was like, nope. You know why? Because it turns out that when Greta Thunberg yells at Western leaders about climate change, you know who doesn't give a crap? Xi Jinping. You know why? Because he's a communist dictator. Because he will run tanks over people in Hong Kong. You think he cares what a very impassioned girl from the, from the Nordic countries has to say about climate change? He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about any of the people who are marching in the streets. He's Xi Jinping. He's a Chinese he dictator. He doesn't care about his own people. Like, exactly. He, he can keep them in poverty. If the economy goes bad, he'll just starve people. <laughs> he doesn't care. You think that people who are presiding over a billion people in India and worrying about the problem of endemic poverty and people dying en masse of typhus are, are, are sitting around going, oh, well, you know, now that these kids are cutting school in Britain, that changes everything. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Sure. Do you think that the impeachment inquiry will galvanize the right and turn out the vote in 2020? I think the right will turn out to vote in 2020 no matter what, because the threat of the left is, is too extreme. I think the only way that wasn't going to happen is if they would have nominated somebody like Biden, who is so boring and half not alive, that people would have not been impassioned to vote. But if Elizabeth Warren's the nominee, the right will turn out to vote. That's not really the question. The question is how independents vote, how suburban women vote, uh, and all the Democrats going to show up this time. This is why the right is real sanguine about this election. I am not. I think that the left did not turn out in part in 2016 because they thought two things. Trump was definitely going to lose and Hillary was a jerk. And they were right on one of those things. And that meant that a lot of people stayed home. No one is staying home in 2020. The, the turn, voter turnout rate is going to be 193%. People who have not yet been born will be voting in this election. Like people, people will go, people, the, the, the size of the popular vote gap will be so incredibly large. Mm. I mean, because people in California, and that doesn't matter, but so the people- we'll hear about the whole electoral oh, college crap again. Oh God. I mean, okay. like, like the, every, per, do you know a person in California who's not going to vote? Oh no. I knew a lot of people last time who didn't. I know people that voted in the primaries that had never voted in a primary before here in California. And people will people will go people will walk over broken glass in major lefty cities to vote. Yep. Which means that President Trump not only has to get out the vote, he also the, the art of politics, as I've said many times, is making it very difficult to vote for your opponent and making it very easy to vote for you. Donald Trump is great at the first part and crappy at the last part. He's very good at making it difficult to vote for his opponent. He's very bad at making it easy to vote for him. Elizabeth Warren Especially this week. Right, exactly. Well, but most weeks. I mean, he has personality flaws that make it very difficult for people to, to feel the level of requisite personal loyalty to him. Now, a lot of Republicans do because they feel like, oh, he beat Hillary Clinton. I mean, that, that earns some loyalty. He's done a lot of good things. That earns some loyalty. But if you're a moderate, you're an independent, it's not easy to get over that hump. Uh, if you're Elizabeth Warren, I feel like the same thing could obtain, but that's not totally clear as of yet, right? I mean, it could obtain that she makes it very hard to vote for Trump, but it's also hard to vote for her because she's too radical. Mm-hmm. The one thing, however, that is true about Warren is that she is malleable and she moves and she is pretty dishonest and she's not nearly as stagey as Hillary Clinton and she's way more clever. All right. So that's that's a problem. All right. We are running out of time, but this is a good question, but I don't know if you can answer it because you might end up outing somebody. Ben, when you say that you know a lot of celebrities who are secretly conservative, do they pretend to be leftists on social media or do they just not mention politics at all? I mean, every so often they'll sort of virtue signal, but about widely agreed upon issues. So they, they, they'll agree, like, climate change is a thing. Okay, fine. Um, but most, mostly they, they stay silent. So if there's, like, a controversial social issue that crops up, they'll usually just not say anything. And that's sometimes how you can tell who is who. That's why people were suspecting for a long time that Taylor Swift might be conservative because she shut up about politics. Mm-hmm. And then she got, and then now she's trying to backfill that. Now she's become- Super woke now. Right, now, now, she, now she's like, Oh my God, people thought that that's the, she realized it was hurting her. I mean, talk about manipulative. She realized that was hurting her politically and, and in terms of media and sales. And suddenly it was, I'm on the gay marriage bandwagon too. And it's like, that was made legal in 2013, lady. Where you been? It was basically that for, for people who have never seen Pop Star, which is a, a movie with the, the band Lonely Island, uh-huh. there's, there's a song that they do called, I think it's called Equality, about gay rights slash not gay because the guy who's rapping is talking about how much he's for gay rights, but I'm not gay. And that's the whole that's the whole song. And at the very end of that social justice warrior song, Bono comes on and he's like, I don't understand why he's even talking about this. He's 10 years late on this. And, that, and that's that's exactly what Taylor Swift is. But silence in Hollywood tends to denote at least some level of sympathy for for non leftist positions. All right. 
If you had to move to another nation, which ones would be on the top of your list? Well, because I'm Jewish, uh, you have to consider the possibility of anti-Semitism elsewhere. So the problem is that America is real good to the Jews and has been historically very good to the Jews. Not a lot of other places on earth very good for the Jews. <laughs> so Israel has to be on the list for purposes of safety, also because I have religious connections with the land of Israel, um, you know, just as evangelical Christians do in, their, in, in a slightly different way. Um, so Israel would obviously be on the list. Um, also, that is, yeah, and this is where everybody goes, oh, dual loyalty. It's like, no, that's not dual loyalty. That dual loyalty would mean that I value Israel above the United States, which is certainly not true. But Israel is a democratic ally of the United States. They happen to be ethnically majority Jewish, and they also happen to be good to Jews. So a few things there. Um, so that's not and dual that's loyalty any more than saying to an Irish person, if you had to move to another country, where'd you move? And they say Ireland. Okay, so in any case, the, where else? Uh, Australia? I love would Australia. Would be on the list, probably. I've never visited, but I hear it's great. Um, Let's see, nowhere in Europe, nowhere in Europe. It's just not safe for Jews. Um, Canada, probably for the moment. As long as Trudeau um, isn't there. Uh, even, you know, even there are just not that many. Like, I don't think there are that many great places to live. Hmm. I don't. I mean, they're, they're, and part of that is being Jewish. I mean, it, like, they're if you're a Jew, all the, the, the industrialized world is filled with countries that slaughtered Jews en masse. Mm-hmm. within living memory. So I have some real, it's a short list. A and it, and it, it ain't a long list, right? And, and so I'm very hesitant to move to a place that exterminated Jews like when my grandparents were, were in their 20s. Like that, that, seems, that seems like a mistake, so. So Israel, Australia, Canada. I would say Australia. It's a great country. Australia's fantastic. They have good wine. New Zealand is small. New Zealand seems nice. I haven't been there. We went to Australia for our honeymoon though. Also they have hobbit holes and everything. I mean, the scenery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ben. Oh, and somebody thinks I'm beautiful. You're too kind. I'm a 6-1 fan. <laughs> if a first-time president gets impeached, does this term limit get reset as per constitution? Meaning, if, for example, Trump gets impeached, can he run for two more terms? No. If he's, imbe- no. If he's impeached, that has no impact on his future runs. If he's removed from office, he's barred from running for office ever again. All right. This is Article a- 2, Section 7. Like a nice encyclopedia, guys. Gosh. All right, this is a history question. You're probably going to like this, and you mentioned this guy earlier. From 1829 to 1837, Andrew Jackson was president, and during his tenure, he abolished the then central bank. Could we do that again today, and should we? So uh, the question is, what does the Federal Reserve actually do? So uh, I am not a huge fan of the Federal Reserve being able to manipulate interest rates. Uh, it was est- it was established, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, but it was it was really utilized more and more as a backstop for the American economy, ensuring that people were holding central deposits and the depositors were protected. Uh, in a libertarian world, I think that you should be able to scope out your bank, and then you would pick a bank that has a solid holdings to lending ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen those ratios skew wildly depending on government action and government regulation. So it's created a certain amount of moral hazard. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a good argument for it. I think it is so embedded in American life that it'd be very difficult to do that without significantly impacting the economy. Because now people would start saying, okay, well, I've never thought about like my bank and what are their holdings? I have no idea. And the reason I have no idea is because I just assume that the government is going to save me if things go wrong, right? If the bank goes bust, the government will pay me back my money. Mm-hmm. Um, but because nobody has actually done that research, it could lead to uh, some, some pretty significant uncertainty and chaos in the markets before order was restored. All right, you're gonna love this. It's our last question. Oh, thank God. <laughs> what is your favorite animated superhero show? An animated superhero show? I don't know that I watched a lot of superhero animated shows. I didn't watch like, I know Batman was supposed to be great. I, and that, oh. that is the go-to answer, obviously, but I don't, I don't actually know that I've watched a lot of that sort of stuff. Animated, but you liked into into the Spider Verse. I mean, Ducktales. I mean, it's a movie. Yeah, du- Ducktales is great. <laughs> I wonder if you can still get those. Probably. You and if you it. ever if you ever want a laugh, there's a guy who does an Ian McKellen impersonation on YouTube, and he and he uses and he does the entire Ducktales theme song in Ian McKellen's voice. I love that. guy. It is spectacular. He's so great. That's it. We're done. Ben gets to go home for the weekend. You guys get to like go home for the weekend. Have a drink for us in your Leftist Tears Tumblr, which you get if you're a Daily Wire subscriber, an annual subscriber, though. And thanks so much for watching, everyone. And be sure to join us for next month's episode of The Conversation featuring Andrew Clavin. I'm Alicia Krause. I'm Ben Shapiro. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 
We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 